of the Lord and his place, and then humility. The second thing we talked about last week, uh, beyond keeping the foot, was recognizing who it is that we approach. And we used Jacob for that, if you'll remember. We turned to uh, Genesis 28, and we heard Jacob, you know, he thought he was all by himself, all in his lonesome, oh, poor me, my brother seeks my, my life, and, uh, you know, maybe he's going to be the one that inherits the promise after all. I don't know. What am I to do? What am I to do? You know, and here he is alone in, the, in this place that is called Luz. And so he takes his, this rock, and he sets it up for a pillow, and at least that will keep his head up off the dirt. And he puts his head down on that rock. Maybe he put his little, his little uh, script down there. And asleep he goes. And the Lord descends upon him in a dream, a visionary dream. Shows him a ladder stretched between heaven and earth. And the angels of God ascending and descending. And at the top of that ladder, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you this land. And what does Jacob say when he woke up? Certainly... God is in this place and I knew it not. And we said that we wanted that never to be said about ourselves. That we would come to the worship assembly of the saints and miss the fact that God is here present covenantally to meet with his people. Who is it that we approach when we come to worship? And so that has to do with all of those other things, doesn't it? These are certainly intertwined concepts. Then we said we need to be ready to hear, just like Solomon tells us here in Ecclesiastes 5, ready to hear. And by ready to hear, what we, what we heard in that was humility. Because it's the fool that prattles on with his words, making oath after oath after oath that he never intends to keep their high spiritually sounding words and so they satisfy him in their bouncing off the air rather than in the commitment to do what he has vowed i don't know if you caught this or not but take a look at it in the passage that we just read verse six suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. This is related to the former point about who it is that we come to worship. Who is the angel here? It is the angel of the covenant that is sent to worship with the people of God. It is Christ himself who of himself will say, I will sing in the midst of the church. In Psalm 40. So why will you say before the angel, it was an error? Why should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Why? Because you couldn't keep your mouth shut. Because you couldn't let your words be few. You thought that devotion was tied to wordiness. Jesus speaks of that, doesn't he? When he speaks about the prayers of the heathen, they suppose that they will be heard for their much speaking. This teaches us about gravity and scarcity in our words. We were talking about principles of economics at the lunch table today. Um, when, when there's a lot of something, 
it's worth less. And when there's a little bit of something, it's worth more. That's just the laws of supply and demand. We all understand that. Why is um, a particularly uh, uh, precision cut diamond worth more than one of the same weight that doesn't have the work done on it? Because not many diamonds have been cut like that, if any. There are some things they are called in this world, quote, priceless. Why are they called priceless? Because they have no peer. There's nothing at all like them in the world. And so they can't be rightly valuated because they're so rare. Their scarcity and their gravity go together. And this is what Solomon is saying. Let the scarcity and gravity of your words go together because in a multitude of words, there's vanity. The fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. <clears throat> so we saw that last week as well. And then finally we ended <clears throat> with Micah 6, 6 through 8. And we learned there that we are not competent to create worship ordinances. Not competent. That if we're going to profit from the worship of God, we're going to have to hear from Him rather than making stuff up. You remember what Micah does there. How shall I come before the high God? And we might be inclined to say, good question, Micah. Very good question. The high God. You're coming to recognize, aren't you? We're coming to recognize God's highness. His exalted estate. How shall I come before a God like that? Rivers of oil? Ten thousands of rams? How about my firstborn, the offspring of my body for the sin of my soul. Surely God will be pleased with that. That's the greatest offering I could give. And beloved, when you hear of that taking place in the Old Testament, don't be so abhorred by it as to fail to see that what those folks were doing is the highest carnal act of devotion that they could devise. And the Lord calls it an abomination. We are not competent. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require of thee? And so if we would profit from the worship of God, then we would profit by way of regulation, by way of reverence, by way of propriety, recognizing God's ownership over the service, by way of humility, by way of remembering who it is that we approach so that we don't have to go back on our word before the angel, that we keep our words few and grave in the worship service, and again, that we do not make things up and call it devotion. So those are the first few things that we saw, even out of just the first couple of verses, right, of, of uh, Ecclesiastes 5. And, of course, those truths are not contained only in that one passage of scripture. We could look throughout the scriptures and find those same principles stated to us over and again. It might be interesting for us, rather than moving on right away, because uh, Solomon is going to go immediately to vows as the right expression, if they're handled rightly, of those few words. Right? The few words that we want to speak before the Lord are those right vows that are put into our mouths such that we might not 
over-speak. Um, you'll remember that, uh, that, it, that vows are often used superstitiously, aren't they? They're used superstitiously in such a way that, that folks will vow to do this or that. I remember an old movie I watched decades ago where this man was, he had, um, he'd had to jump out of a helicopter and he was about two miles off the shore in the Pacific Ocean. And he starts swimming for shore. And he says, <clears throat> Oh Lord, if I make it to shore, I'll give you half of my income. He, you know, he vows a vow unto the Lord. Well, he swims along for about a mile and he's halfway there. And, oh Lord, if I make it to shore, I'll give you my, uh, I'll, I'll donate my car instead of the half of his income, you know. And the closer he gets to shore, the vow reduces and reduces and reduces. And when he finally drags himself up after a two mile swim onto the shore, he says, oh Lord, you and I both know you don't need any of my stuff. And he's done. Well, he had those words of a fool that Solomon is talking about here rather than those wise and grave few words. We might remember our, our vows of church membership for a moment and how they are wise and few. What have we vowed to do? You, some of you parents will remember the vows that you took at the baptism of your children. Those wise and few words that you took upon your lips by saying, yes, I will. To raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To press Christ to them. To speak gospel truth to them. That you have already yourselves professed that Jesus Christ is your sovereign Lord and his doctrine of salvation, the only true doctrine of salvation. And that you trust not in yourself, but in Christ alone. You remember those words. They are few and they are grave. They're weighty. And so Solomon is not talking about uh, doing away with vows. He's talking about using them in wisdom, rightly instead. So, there are other basic principles that are outside of the purview of this passage, and I want to show you some of those. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians for a moment, <clears throat> and we're going to see some other broad principles. The principles we've seen thus far, regulation, reverence, propriety, humility, memory, remembering who we approach, right? Um... Shunning creativity in worship. And then letting our words be few. In 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. We have some more broad principles. These are passages that are specifically written to the Corinthian church. To help them rightly to organize their public worship. And to profit from it. So in the first instance, in the first half of chapter 11, that takes us down, oh, let's see, through about verse 16, we have ladies and their head coverings. And if you're interested, I have uh, three or four sermons online pertaining to this, and we'll not 
incrementally look as we did in those sermons at this passage. But there's a broad principle that we want to understand here. And that is order, authority, office, if you will. All of that sort of rolled up into one. So notice it says that that there is a point at which ladies can be praying or prophesying in the worship service. Now some have taken this, I think, outside of the analogy of Scripture itself. And they've had women prophetesses, as they call them, and women teachers, as they call them, and, and, and so on in the church. Forgetting that in that same section of regulation, the apostle in chapter 14 will say, let your women keep silence in the churches. It's not permitted to them to speak. When we come up against apparently contradictory things in Scripture, it's up to us to do our exegetical duty to harmonize from the one mind of God how such passages can exist only three chapters apart one from another. And that in the same context. Chapter 11 speaks of two particular things, head coverings for women and the Lord's Supper. Both of those things involve the public worship, when ye come together. Chapter 12, we'll talk about order and office in that there are, there are men in the church, they are called the spirituals, the spiritually gifted ones, and they're gifted for leadership in the church, for teaching, for leadership, for, govern, for governance, for the ability to, to give, uh, to impart the goods that people have brought to Christ for the good of others. That is in the diaconate. And then there are people that are not called in that way. In our day of you know, making everybody a minister or a pope in every pew, as some people have said it, this, this grinds against our sensibilities. But if we will profit from the worship we will know our place in the worship. And that's what's being spoken of there in chapter 11 and chapter 12. In chapter 13, Paul interrupts the flow of talking about the ordinances of worship to give the governing principle in all of them, and that is what? Love, charity, agape. That it is out of our love toward God and love toward our fellow Christian that we must come to worship. And if we don't come to worship like that, then we're not going to profit, and our neighbor is not going to profit. And so there's a love responsibility that we have one toward another. So that we should add to what we have heard already, regulation, reverence, propriety, humility, memory, um, Lack of creativity, letting our words be few, or humility again. Now we're going to add to that order, place, station, office, love. We have to add those things if we're going to profit from the worship service. And in that we fail in those things, we will fail to profit as the Lord has provided for in a proper understanding of all these things. And then in chapter 14, chapter 14, the final chapter is, uh, in this section, is edification. We must learn to edify one another. 
And so maybe we can take these points here in, 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 that we see in Corinth and we can put them all under one title, if you will. And that is, as I've tried to teach you before, learning to live and function covenantally with each other. That is when we come together. Beloved, we have to face it. We have to understand that when you get a group of people, it doesn't matter if it's 12 or 100, when we come together to do something in common, that we come together as families, we, we in, in, at least in, in some sense, diminish those family lines in order to come together as a people, yet those distinctives remain among us, the distinctives of family. And families do things differently. And we may end up seeing people do things that are their responsibility in their families that we wouldn't do in the same way. We must learn to live covenantally in that. To give folks the opportunity to work in such a way that we're not um, being dismayed or judging or any other such thing with these necessary differences between us. We learn to live covenantally. Anybody remember the covenantal question that we have to ask ourselves? The covenantal question is this. What if everybody did what I'm about to do right now? What if everybody did that? Now, in some cases, that may, the answer to, to that may be, may be uh, not as meaningful as it would be at other times. For instance, if you uh, wake up on Sunday morning and you're extra tired and you say, because I'm extra tired, I'm going to go back to bed, you may ask yourself that question. What if everybody that's extra tired did that? That's a good question to ask yourself. But in some cases, the person that asked that question, being in a different station, a different place, it's going to be more meaningful to answer. Like, what if I did that? That's going to be a little bit different in, in, the, in the answer and in the effect. But that doesn't mean that because those answers are different, that the responsibility is any less. One covenanter to another. It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Because we're not taught literally uh, very often to, to think that way, to think covenantally. Uh, we may grow up in a family where we learn to think familially, and yet even in these days, uh, in, when the uh, family comes under the crosshairs of society, there is more and more push, more and more pressure, isn't there, to work not covenantally even in a family. And to think of the, the family unit as not a family unit at all, but disconnected individuals, right? Or loosely connected individuals. Well, these are all things uh, that we're throwing out for your meditation, fodder for your own meditations. But let's go ahead and move back into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment and take a look at some of the things that are said there. So, when we talk about every woman who is praying or prophesying in verse 5, with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, for that is uh, even all one as if she were shaven. 
The scripture is making a scripturally natural argument there. It's a scripture natural argument. And by scripture natural, I mean both things are true. The scripture identifies something that the course of nature teaches us, and that is that a woman's hair is given to her for for her glory, and it is abhorrent for a woman to shave her head. You say, Pastor, it's not abhorrent anymore. No, it's not recognized as abhorrent. It's still abhorrent. It's still contrary to nature. Okay, this is what the this is what the Lord says through His apostle in First Corinthians eleven, and so shaving her head is off is off limits. That's not even an option here, and I want you to to I don't know how you would do it, but if your Bible uh, has some footnotes in it that say, well, this has to do with the culture and a certain class of women in Corinth and so on, I want you to maybe take a blank piece of paper and just tape it down over those words. Because it doesn't help you. It doesn't help us with the timeless word of God. The persons that write such things have a predisposition toward a cultural interpretation of this passage when Paul does not argue culturally ever in it. He argues from nature, which doesn't change. I know people say it changes, but it doesn't. You can pay people to cut your body up, but you're still who you were when you were born. Okay? Let's remember that. Secondly, um, Paul will appeal to angels. Thirdly, Paul will appeal to the created order. You see, none of these things change. Paul is not making a cultural argument at all. If he was, then he would use cultural arguments. But he's not. And so how do we reconcile then praying or prophesying in verse 5 of chapter 11 with silence In 1434, we can turn over there for a moment, just to make sure we understand it. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Well, that's obviously hate speech in some areas of the world today, but this is the word of God. The order that the Lord has placed in the church is that women should not be leading in the church. But they are free, ladies, to join in when the people of God use their voices in unity. That is, when they pray and also in their prophesying or singing. And many of the older divines, you do have to read some of the older divines in order to hear that interpretation But when you read them, you will find that they agree almost to a person. Because in the days that the the authorized version was translated, this was common knowledge that prophesying was often uh, a, a shorthand name for the singing of psalms. So ladies, we want you to sing with us. Keep silence doesn't mean you keep silence when the church is engaged in a corporate voice. And then when we all pray together through the leadership of the voice of one, we want you to make sure you're praying with us. And if there is a spoken unison prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, and this pastor will never put anything but the, but the word of the Lord in your mouths because of the corporate amen, which we will study later, you, can, you ought to feel free to, to vocalize that with the rest of the congregation. That's praying and prophesying with your head covered. Your 
recognizing with that head covering your place in the worship service. Your answering to the authority of your husband. And that's a good thing. That's what God has designed. So what do we learn in chapter 11 then? We learn place. We learn that there is a proper place. If we're going to, prop, if we're going to profit from the worship service, we must know our place. Paul will make sure that that's very well stated in chapter 14 where he will say, now there are, there are two or three of you prophets on the prophet's bench up at the front of the church. Okay? There is time for you all to speak one by one by one. One prophet doesn't get to stand up and, um, and interrupt another prophet that's speaking. Because God is not the author of confusion. Everything should be done in decency and in order. Not only should he not be interrupted by another prophet, he most certainly should not be interrupted by one of the members of the congregation. There is decency and order in the worship service. Let me put it to you this way. We must know our place. How do we know our place in the worship service? We must, if, if we're told to keep our foot, may I just extend that to 1 Corinthians 11 here, and we're to keep our speech as well. We've already been told by Solomon to let our words be few. That is, that we must watch over our speech. But how do we watch over our speech? Well, let me give you a different scenario outside of public worship. Let's say that you're in your family worship. Dads, you're reading a passage of scripture, singing a psalm, and you have some prayer time. And let's say that during the middle of the prayer time, one of your children stands up and starts praying over the top of you. That's not uncommon. That happens in families because children become, you know, enthusiastic. They want to pray. They want to pray out loud like their, like their dad did, like their mom did, like their older brother or sister did. And sometimes they just need a little help as to when that's right to do so. So they might stand up even perhaps during dads as you're explaining what you've just read. They might stand up and start preaching. You know, they'll get themselves up there and they just start speaking away. And you would say, Susie, Johnny, no reference to anybody's names here. This is not the proper time for you to be speaking. You should be listening right now. There may be another time for you here in our family worship, but not right now. Daddy is speaking. Mommy is speaking. Daddy is praying. And God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And this is to reign in all of the churches and, beloved, in our homes. And if we're going to profit, part of that is knowing our place. Right? So there's that. In chapter 11, a little bit later, Paul will talk about the Lord's Supper. And when he goes to speaking about the Lord's Supper, he will, he will talk about regulating our desires. And once again, he'll talk about regulating the Lord's Supper. 
The Corinthians had completely twisted the Lord's Supper into a a full-on, a full-blown covenant meal that had enough wine for people to get drunk at. And they were doing that. Because that's where they came from. Remember, they weren't just, you know, they had not, not just thrown off all restraint. They had learned a worship form in the idol house in Corinth, and they brought that into their own worship service. And Paul will tell them, no, this is not that kind of meal. This is not a steak dinner. This is not an indulging of the flesh. This is a spiritual meal. It's bread and it's wine and not very much of that because it's not to appeal to our senses. It's to appeal to our souls. And so that's the the balance of chapter 11. And so what do we learn? We learn the proper context of things. The church is not a place to eat and drink in. That is, the worship service is not a place to eat and drink in, in that sense. It's not a place to satiate the body. It's a place to come to be satisfied in the soul. And so our worship should be, here's the word, spiritual, not carnal. In chapter 12, Paul will begin by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. You've heard me say this before. I say it again here now that the word gifts is in italics. And so concerning spirituals and what those spirituals are, you might understand is the topic of hot debate among Bible expositors. Let me give you your pastor's point of view because I know that one pretty well. I believe that uh, when we come to the end of chapter 14, notice what it says here in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Who then are the spirituals? They are the ones who are gifted in office in the church. Now concerning these spiritual officers, these spiritually gifted ones, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. He's not talking about everyone there. He's talking about their teachers. And this runs down through the bulk of the chapter. But so that everyone understands that worship then is not a spectator sport, Paul will will reintroduce the principle of a body. And he will say, you know, we have some members of our bodies that are more comely than others. We might think of an eye. You know, a mouth, a face. We think of beautiful faces, handsome faces. Nobody thinks of a beautiful liver or a handsome kidney. Unless maybe you're a doctor in that field. We don't think of it that way, do we? And yet, Paul will say that some of the least comely of our members are the more necessary to us. You might live with a marred face, but can you live without a kidney or two? Can you live without a liver? It's called liver for a reason. Right? 
Some of you are just getting that. Okay. <laughs> Paul will, will say, you that are not up front leading, don't think that you're worthless in the body. You're like those less comely parts that are even more necessary. Because if the whole body was a mouth, where's the hearing? And if the whole body was hearing, where's the speaking? We can't all be everything. So once again, knowing our place and loving our place and relishing our place is extremely important to profit from the worship service. Then we move on to chapter 13. Oh, by the way, Paul begins in chapter 12 with office and he ends in chapter 12 with office. So he sandwiches that section in the middle to talk about the body generally. So place, station in the church, very important for profiting from the worship service. Order, if you will. All right, so then we have chapter 13. And in chapter 13, well, we, we, we learn another word, love. Right? So what do we have? We have reverence. We have humility. We have propriety. We have regulation. We have memory who we come to, to appear before. We have a lack of creativity. We don't create worship ordinances. We want gravity in our words. We want order. We want charity, love. All of these things are broad principles that we will need to profit from the worship service. And if we're lacking in any one of these, we will lack in our profitability. We will not profit as we should, according to God's design in our worship. So the next point then is love in chapter 13. And what do we find out about love in chapter 13? We find out that love is sacrificial and redemptive, as we have said before, that we have this responsibility when we come to worship one with one another not to worship for ourselves but primarily we come to worship God and then to edify and love one another and then we're last on the list I remember a, a thing I learned back when I was in the evangelical churches as a little guy and it is held one of those things has held it's the word joy right joy Jesus then others, and then you. In that order, remember that, that that is the way to joy and profitability in the kingdom of God. Jesus, others, and then you. Often we get that reversed, don't we? Sadly so. All right, so then we move on from chapter 13 to chapter 14, and, you, and you'll recognize that we're going 30,000 foot level just to pick up these broad principles. So Paul will say, follow after charity and desire spirituals, right? Desire those spiritual offices, but rather that ye may prophesy. And so chapter 14 is given to the concept of edification. That we come to build, to build up each other in this kingdom. And this is not a, uh, an uncommon theme in the scripture. Peter will talk about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul will talk about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And he talks about it here in chapter 14. It's actually Ephesians 2 and 4 where Paul talks about edification, right? Let's remind ourselves of that by turning over to Ephesians chapter 2. 
We looked at Ephesians 4 recently, so we'll not turn there. Just remember that, that, um, <clears throat> that it's the ministry of the gospel, that spiritual office, that is for the gathering and perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edification of the body of Christ, till we all come to that perfect man and able to edify one another also. That's the goal of the ministry, is to teach the people of God, not to replace the minister, but to learn how in that member-to-member way, edify one another, while the edification of the ministry goes on to the people of God. Some have overblown that idea and have said, you know, it's the minister's job in a, in a sort of effect to put himself out of work, that the members do the, do the edification. No, there's a member-to-member edification that is true and proper, and there's a minister-to-member edification that is true and proper as well. And both of those things must go forward together. But the one rises up out of the other. The member-to-member edification rises up from the edification of the minister to the people, the teaching office to the member of the church. That's what Ephesians 4 teaches. Look at what Ephesians 2 teaches. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's a magnificent description of the edification work that the church is to do. We don't come, beloved, to church to profit as individuals. We come as a covenant people to glorify the Lord and then to edify one another. Edify is just an is it's just the Latin word to speak of building up a building. All this building language here that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and the building language he uses in Ephesians 4 is the same language that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn with me there. Verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone... Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded." Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, 
that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, notice the similarity of language in all of these passages. We have Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. We have the apostles and prophets as the rest of the foundation. And the people of God being built up the spiritual house. Edification. Now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 3, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and to exhortation and to comfort. And then Paul will go on to say in this passage, um, verse 12, even so ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spirituals, of officers, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. If you're going to be an officer, your job is to edify the church. If you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to be a teacher of spiritual things, that must be too edifying. It can't be anything but. You desire, say, to speak in tongues. And again, there's a difference among godly commentators as to what speaking in tongues means in 1 Corinthians. I'll tell you what your pastor believes. Again, because I know that view the best. That what is being spoken of here is the liturgical Hebrew that the Jews wanted to bring into the worship service. And the Gentiles are saying, we don't understand that language. There's nothing we can do to understand it. How can we say, amen, we don't know what you've said. Remember that the Jews sang in Hebrew. They sang the Psalms in Hebrew. And they prayed in Hebrew. A friend of mine just got a little placard that somebody made for him it's written in hebrew and it says baruch ata adonai eloheinu right maker of heaven blessed be the lord our god maker of heaven and earth and so on and those were prayers that jews offered in the midst of their synagogue service and they understood them but the gentiles did not and paul will say how can one be edified if the language that is spoken is unintelligible to him let all things be done unto edifying if you want to speak in this language fine but if there's no interpreter of that language then keep silent pray to yourself and to god and be edified personally but you will not be edifying corporately so keep quiet pretty simple really when you boil it down like that uh <clears throat> the other thing that is often misunderstood about this passage is the way Paul is speaking when he says, um, my understanding is unfruitful, right? Uh, what he means by that is my being understood. If I speak in a tongue, he's not saying my understanding is unfruitful as if I'm speaking a language and I don't know what I'm saying. And it's okay because I can speak any words to God and God doesn't mind. No, let your words be few and grave. These folks that stand up in the midst of churches today and begin speaking in a language they, they never learned and don't know what they're saying, they have violated the principle of 1 Corinthians 14 and Ecclesiastes 5. It's not orderly, it's not edifying, and it's not intelligible. They're not profiting from the worship service, beloved. There's no edification going on. Paul will say here, not my understanding is unfruitful, but 
my being understood is how that ought to be interpreted. My being understood is unfruitful. No one will understand me if I use liturgical Hebrew. I speak in tongues more than you all. I grew up speaking Hebrew at the feet of Gamaliel, Paul will say. But I won't use it in the church because it's not understandable. I'd rather speak one word to be understood than 10,000 that won't be understood. And so the final principle that we have here in 1 Corinthians 14 is edification. Edification by the word of God. And edification that we owe one to another from the word of God. So, what are the principles? These are the broad principles. Lord willing, next week, <coughs> excuse me, we'll begin descending into other particulars. But the broad principles are this. If we would profit from the worship service, we want regulation. We want reverence. We want propriety. That is, we want to remember whose house it is, and whose service it is. In Hebrews chapter 3, the Lord will say concerning Moses that he was a servant in the house. Christ was a son over the house. So Moses was commanded, see that you make everything according to the pattern you received in the mount. It's not your house. You don't get to make it up. It's Christ's house. And so we look to him to define these terms. Regulation, reverence, propriety, humility, memory, remembering who we approach. A lack of innovation and creativity. Not stepping on things that are not ours. Gravity and sincerity in our words. Coming with the heart in a spiritual worship. And then as we turned over to 1 Corinthians 14, what did we see? We saw order and authority. Then what else did we see? We saw that carnal principle once again rear its ugly head, that our worship should be a spiritual worship when we come to the Lord's table and not a carnal worship. Right? The spirituality of our worship ought to be at the fore. In spirit and in truth, John 4.24, that we come according to that new heart that the Spirit of God has given to us with sincerity, with devotion unto the Lord. And then in truth, that is according to His Word. And then what else did we see in 1 Corinthians 14? We saw order once again, and yet we also saw that in that order, everyone is necessary. All of you are as necessary to the worship service as the minister is. Then we saw love as that necessary component of our worship in order to profit. And then finally, we saw edification. All of these things are the broad principles that Scripture presents to us if we would profit from the worship service. So let's make just a couple of uses before we close then. <clears throat> there is something that I haven't mentioned yet that the scripture also uh, sets us up to understand. It is in some cases explicit, in some cases it is implicit. And that is that P word, preparation. If we would profit from the word, from the worship of God, we would prepare 
to profit. We would prepare our hearts. And of course, this is on many pages of Scripture. It's in many books and chapters and verses in the Scripture where we, where we would recognize that if we're going to do anything, first of all, by the light of nature, that things are always better if we prepare for them than not. If we have anything to do that we must excel at, we're all going to agree that we'll be better at it when the moment comes if we have prepared. That's the first salvo. The second salvo, however, is that the scripture speaks to us about preparing ourselves. Our Lord Jesus is a great example of that before every milestone of his earthly uh, sojourn, he prepared himself. He went out all night in prayer before he appointed his 12 apostles. He prepared to do that by prayer and communion with his Father. We are told that if we are going to uh, bring our offering to the Lord, that we must first be reconciled to our brother and then bring our offering. There's a preparation that has to do with one another in that, lest our worship be hindered. There's a preparation that husband and wife are, are spoken of, that they must be reconciled one to another. Right? First Peter chapter 3. That your prayers be not hindered. Beloved, we come and perhaps we put this, this greatest thing over the top of, of, of all, and that is we come with that remembering who it is that we approach. In some ways, this is not possible for us because God is so far beyond us. And any conception that we have of him is, is at best an anthropopathic and an anthropomorphic conception, isn't it? I mean, to know God in say, as he is in himself, that is simply reserved for the persons of the Trinity. It's really not our, we, we don't penetrate those errors, do we? Yet, we are required to approach him truly as he has revealed himself in his word, as he has showed himself to us. When Micah says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, a part of what he has showed us is what? Who he is. This is what Jesus will say when he calls men to himself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 and we'll close with this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. What are the next words? Come unto me. Come unto me. Why? Because we are the recipients of Christ's own self-revelation and of his Father's revelation. It is that knowledge of God that draws us near if it is a right knowledge. So beloved, in all of our preparation, 
we must indeed remember and know the Lord. And that will be the facility for all of these other principles of propriety, of remembering who it is that we approach, of reverence, of humility, of order, and so on. All of those things will be rightly sweetened if we can spend some time on Saturday night and Sabbath morning to get ourselves in a frame of mind to know the God we approach. Know Him. And these other principles will follow more and more. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for these broad principles of worship by which we come rightly to give Thee glory. Grant them to us, we pray, Father. We are not naturally humble nor reverent. Naturally, we like Pharaoh say, Who is the Lord? Naturally, we press out of order We press our own aggrandizement and recognition. Naturally, we do not build up. We tear down. O Lord, we pray, take away from us, as we heard from Peter, that malice and deceit, the evil speakings, the envies and hypocrisies, And grant us that we might know Thee and come unto Thee and worship Thee. And that we, with John Baptist, would say, He must increase and I must decrease. And that we would, in our places, edify one another and give Thee all the glory that is due unto Thee. Oh, Lord, help us then. Help us to profit from the public worship in these broad principles. And as we descend to particulars and the outworking of the breadth that thou hast revealed in thy word, we pray. Grant that we might take hold of these things as well. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.